Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed, or in this case, Gareth Jones on a bus. I'm on my way into central London to take part in a debate and a discussion and a launch on a report about the future of the electric car. Hmm, sounds like our kind of thing. Especially when buses are as slow as they are. That was an incoming message from Zog, who's also making his way to the debate with a crucial question. He said, have you got any spare batteries? I'm assuming that's for the recording equipment that Zog's bringing with him as well. It is a problem with electricity. Battery life. Right, now I've got to change to another mode of transport, and this one's electric. Unfortunately, it's London's sweaty tube. Almost there now. I'm going to the Royal Academy of Engineers to meet Academy member Richard Ploshek, a regular listener of this show who worked on the report. We all want electric vehicles to happen, because deep down we're all slightly green and we all think they've got to work. But there's an awful lot of engineering that goes on around them, you know, where you're going to charge them and things like that. So the report is examining those areas, like how do you get around people trailing wires out of their letterbox to charge their car overnight, all these little things, all the money that goes into the industry to try and make those things happen properly. Allied to that, there's also things to do with electricity generation. We've done a lot of work on that, and this is sort of... The icing on the cake for me, I'm a bit of a piston head, so I like cars. So to get all our energy work rolled up into a little bit about cars has been great. But what we're looking at is, hang on a minute, what happens if we've got 30 million electric vehicles on the roads in the UK? It's a big challenge. What's the aim of this event today, ultimately? The report in itself is sort of a big question. There's all sorts of things that energy companies, government, local authorities have got to get together Mm -hmm. and sort out. And really we're asking the question of, hey guys, how are you going to do this? Because it's got to be done, it's got to be done soon. Otherwise electric vehicles are a non-starter. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Zog? Yeah. I could see you eavesdropping there. I was going to say, what would you identify, Richard, as being, let's say, the two most significant factors in holding up the progress in developing and getting electric vehicles onto the road? Is it batteries? Is it energy infrastructure? Is it manufacturers not being prepared to build the stuff? Or is it people not either demanding the stuff or being interested? You know, that people just don't want electric vehicles. Is it a cultural problem or is it a technical problem? And what would you pick out as being the, the couple of most significant issues? On the technical side, it, it's really chicken and egg, because unless you've got the infrastructure there for the charging points, nobody's going to buy an electric car. I wouldn't, you wouldn't. So that's got to happen. Battery problems are the next big technical thing, because if you've only got a range of 100 miles, it's difficult. If you've got a plug-in hybrid, you know, you've got more range, it's much better. So battery technology's got to come on. But the other issue is that your battery is going to be three to £5,000 of the cost of your car. So the cost point at which electric vehicles are competing against your Ford Fiestas is very different. Gentlemen, it looks like we're starting together to go in there. Richard, I'll see you in there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Oh, 
Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Roger Kemp, one of the authors of this report. To start with, I'd like to welcome everybody here. Um, A genuinely fascinating 15-minute introduction and summary of the report from Professor Roger Kemp there was followed by the first speaker who detailed a pilot electric vehicle scheme in the northeast. We were then invited to ask questions and, not being backwards in coming forwards, we did. Hi there, Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed, the self-styled podcast for petrol heads. I know that there are massive engineering and infrastructure challenges ahead to make EVs practical for everyone and their families. And in a culture where, for most people, an aspirational vehicle is a Range Rover Sport or a BMW X6... Is it a tougher cultural battle than a technological battle? Barry, is this one of yours? I'm an engineer, come on. You, you, you know about these things. Um, yeah, definitely. We've been doing surveys throughout uh, the AA and our magazines and, and our members as well. I also manage uh, manufacturing contracts, and that is their biggest problem at the moment. Huge amounts of investment from the manufacturers, lots of initiatives from the government. But where's the consumer demand? And I think that's one of the pieces which I'll be talking about in my presentation, is saying, what is out there? You know, where is this being driven from? Because we don't want a situation where lots of investment and huge amounts of technology sit behind a product that actually, is there a call for it? Thank you. Do you want to pass just to your left? Paul Ison, also from Gareth Jones on Speed. Could you give us maybe an idea of what the scale of any infrastructure issues are beyond the actual charging points in terms of the national grid? And do we have the capacity there? What changes would have to take place in order to support a significant number of electric vehicles on the road? I think it depends on how many cars you have. While you're talking about 3, 4, 5, 6, 20, 30, 40 vehicles, absolutely no problem plugging them anywhere. If you get up to the 100,000 vehicles, still probably doable, as long as you don't put them all in the same place. What we look at in this report is to say, if we're really going to make a difference about climate change, and there are 30 million cars in Britain then we're talking about at least 10 million cars being electric, because there's no point in worrying about 100,000 cars out of 30 million. And then it becomes really quite interesting as to what happens in terms of the electrical distribution system. In terms of power stations, we don't see much of a problem. That, yes, there will be an extra demand. It might require a lot more wind turbines. It might require the odd extra nuclear power station. We're going to need 30 anyhow, so if it's 31, what the heck? You know? I think it's that sort of level of somewhat in- increase, but not a dramatic one. It becomes more interesting when you start looking at things like Manchester United football ground. And if you want to provide plugs and sockets there so that people can come to the game, plug their car in, charge it up and go home when they get afterwards, or Blue Water Shopping Centre or National Exhibition Centre, or somewhere of that sort, then you've got some really big demands coming on, and that means that you're probably looking not at just running the existing 415-volt cable around the place, but you're looking at fairly big transformers and grid supplies. That starts looking fairly uneconomic to me, that if you've got football grounds used twice a week, and if the charging company, or the company that produces puts in the sockets manages to get a couple of quid off the spectators for each recharge. That doesn't make much of a business case. And I think this again comes back to the issue about plug-in hybrids, that the main part of the infrastructure really needs to be where people can plug in 
during the off-peak periods at night near their homes. And that might require some changes to things like planning guidance that are present in some cities. There's planning guidance that discourages people having parking places, encouraging them to go by public transport and so on. With electric vehicles, you might need greater off-street parking and encouragement to use off-street parking. So I, th- I think there are some issues around there, and I see one of our other colleagues is happy to jump in on that in a minute. And there are other questions, I think, about the management of this in terms of time. That if you get home at 6 o'clock in the evening and plug your car in, you don't want it to start charging there and then. Because if you look at the graph of electricity use versus time, there's a big peak at breakfast time when people are sort of getting up, getting dressed, putting their heating on, fairly low during the middle of the day, not a big peak in the evening. So the last thing you want to do is to plug your electric vehicle in at that time. <laughs> what you're probably going to need in 20 years' time is a charging system that takes account of the phase of the moon. Because we might well have tidal energy, we might well have a barrage across the Severn, we'll have turbines and things in the sea, off Anglesey or wherever. And these are determined by tides, so we're looking not at saying from 11pm till 6am you can have cheap electricity, but having a real time control system. When you put your car in your garage at night, you push a button that says either charge it desperately as soon as we possibly can because I know I want to go out later, or you have one that says I want to go out at 8 in the morning, so as long as it's charged by then I don't care when you charge it, and that there'll be some sort of intelligence which is either in the house or centrally or perhaps in your local substation to make sure that you then charge when the low carbon energy is available, which hopefully should also be cheaper. So I think there's some interesting areas here around the smart grid. The big challenge is whether the smart metering system that is being rolled out at the moment by DEC and Ofgen by 2020, which is the sort of objective, is actually going to be compatible with the sort of smart grid systems that we're talking about here. Personally, I haven't seen anything that convinces me that it is, but others might know better, and I leave that as an open question to other people in the hall. (laughs) One of the issues that we were trying to look at in writing the report was to make electric vehicles a proposition that people actually want to go and buy. They're not forced to buy it because it's fun, because it's clean, because it's sexy, for whatever reason. There's a gentleman here who wants to to sort of um, justify uh, how that works. If we're talking about culture again, brand is one of the most influential things around at the moment for most people. Everyone aspires to having an iPhone. Is it perhaps we should be talking to people like Apple or to Rolex or to Ferrari to develop the interesting cars that we all aspire to want? Is it a mistake introducing electrical cars at the cheapest level? We're talking about smart cars. We're talking about cute little fun runarounds. Surely we should be aiming from the top down. I spent a while driving the Tesla Roadster around London and that revolutionised my view of electric cars because of all the cars I've driven, Ferraris included, no one has stopped and wanted to talk to me more about that car. So perhaps we ought to focus less on the engineering and more on the brand side of it. What does the room think about that? I think you've got a really big point there. That that's one of the reasons we actually put a picture of the Tesla Roadster in the report. Next to a smart. Next to a smart, actually. <laughs> um, discussing, really, how do you make these things fun? And the one or two people, when we put a draft out and said electric vehicles will be fun and you've got to want to drive them, 
I had comments back from people saying, I'm not sure I approve of that. This is supposed to be an academic sort of paper. The word fun should not appear in a document by the academy. There is a way that, to make this thing exciting, we can't go around saying, and we want to change your behaviour to make you do this, and we want to analyse the way you do echo driving. It's got to be seen to be exciting. And you're seeing that coming in. I mean, quite a lot of the eco-driving, the little green leaves appear on your dashboard with little green rainbows. Oh, yucky. To tell you what <laughs> But people are following it. People are seeing that as a bit of fun. And I must admit, when I was out in Japan last week, I drove the leaf out there. And that is a, a sim car to drive. It looks, it looks quite sexy, and you can see why people would be attracted to it. But what I've seen also as a trend with the car manufacturers going towards electric, putting a lot more technology in the car to give you more information, to make them smarter. And I think that is one of the things that may well sell in the long term. I'd be really impressed with some of the technology roadmaps that these car manufacturers are pulling out with the electric vehicles. The lady at the back. Zog and I weren't the only people to ask questions or make comments. The room was fully charged with authorities, academics and experts from the motor industry who all had a point to make or follow up, some of whom I made a beeline to talk to afterwards. Starting with Paul Bostock, technical specialist and hybrid and electrification strategy manager for Jaguar Land Rover. Paul, you specialise in these advanced technologies that are going into cars at the moment, and there's a lot of anticipation from what Jaguar Land Rover are going to be putting on their cars soon. Is it the LRX is going to be the first hybrid, possibly even two-wheel drive Land Rover? How does the idea of electric vehicles meet with what appears to be something that's diametrically opposed, and that is the all-purpose vehicle that is Land Rover's product? Well, I don't necessarily think that they're diametrically opposed. I think that our job is to give the consumer what they want at the time that they want it. Up to now, it's been all about flexibility, breadth of capability, all those things. Into the future, breadth of capability is going to include zero emissions or, or low emissions vehicles. We don't think that that's incompatible with what Jaguar or Land Rover means. Our job as engineers is to make sure we can give the customer both things equally. Our electrified Range Rovers and Land Rovers will be capable off-road, they will give you a good load space and they will carry the same number of people as they have done previously. That's just a technical challenge. Are you playing catch-up with people like Toyota and Tesla and the like to make your vehicles? We haven't sat around doing nothing. We've been developing the technologies as we go. We've been watching Toyota with interest. Toyota, obviously, they're playing in a a different vehicle segment from us. For us, it's important to get the technology correct. It's important to be there when the consumer wants us to be there. No good being too early and getting a product out there that they're disappointed with. So that's our main priority. How long before every vehicle in the Land Rover range has some kind of energy recovery technology on board? Well, we've already started. We already have stop-start technologies, which are a type of CO2 mitigation technology. We've had them in since early 2009 on the Freelander. We've recently published our strategy for electrification and low-carbon technology. From around about 2013, you'll see our first hybrid product in the larger vehicles. And moving on from that, from 2015 onwards, you may well see plug-in type hybrid vehicles. And again, it's all about giving that breadth of capability. So we're not saying we're going to do electric vehicles in the next couple of years. They're certainly going to be there in the future, but we're not quite ready yet. But we're making good progress. I think Land Rovers have always made good progress over ground. Let's see them make some great progress in terms of efficiency. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah.
One of the speakers today was Barry Ingate from the AA, the Automobile Association, who, if we all change to electric vehicles, you guys are faced with some, well, unusual, unpredictable problems. You've described some of those issues to overcome in your speech. Could you explain what they are? Certainly. We've seen a couple of different areas that the AA is going to struggle on. Firstly, what's always been our normal roadside assistance package where you know we come out to you we try and fix a car if we can't we recover you anywhere we give you a higher car all of a sudden that's totally taken apart the recovery can we recover you do you want a national recovery probably not you're going to want very small sort of local recoveries now because the cars aren't going to be that far away from a home or a base can we fix the cars all of our real key things the things that we love at the aa coils clutch radiators, all those fantastic things that we can fix at the side of the road. They're going to go out the window. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden we're faced with all those components that we used to be able to repair and get you going on your way. We're not going to have those anymore. So it's now looking at what are we going to be faced with? Can we actually open the bonnet on these cars? Without high vehicle accreditation, the answer is no. Most of the manufacturers are saying to us, if you want to touch our cars, you've got to have the right certification. You know, you've got 400 volts going through the car. You've got to be very careful what you do with that and don't change it in the rain, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) we could have some other problems. What what would this mean to the AA fleet of vans? Would you replace them with electric vehicles that would work in cities that could tow cars to charging points? Is that essentially what you would become? Yes. Some of the issues that when I've been talking to manufacturers, they've been saying they're going to have charging points within the dealerships. Certainly Nissan have been fantastic. They're looking at having 40 key dealerships with 40 quick charging points. Uh-huh. So from the AA's point of view, we can't fix it if it's a battery, the charge has gone, get it straight back into the dealership as well and let them do the quick charge on it. Higher cars as well. You know, At the moment of the AA, if we can't fix your car and we have to take it back to a dealership, we'll give you a higher car. And that's all very well, but if you've got an electric vehicle and you've bought into the whole electric vehicle ethos, do you then want to be given a car from Avis or Enterprise that's petrol or diesel? Because if you're coming into London, you're going to be going through a congestion charging zone that registers your car. All of a sudden, you're going to be hit with those charges. You may be given free parking. You won't if you're in a hire car that's now a petrol or a diesel. So there are lots and lots of issues that we're going to be faced with. But back to the operational fleet, we've already got two vehicles that we've been trialling, two uh, Vectrix electric motorcycles, which we've been running in London. We've now got 50 motorcycles, which two of them are Vectric, and they've been fantastic. We have to have two at the moment because you have to charge one while the other one's being operated and then swap over. It sounds to me that you're suffering the same kind of issues that the prospective EV owner would have exactly. You think, well, actually, I need two cars is the answer. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. The other thing is we're looking at, as soon as we can, is to start using electric vehicles on the AA operational fleet. And we've been talking to people like Smiths and Modec. And certainly when Renault come out with the Kangoo, which will probably be the first commercial vehicle, we're keen to work with Renault, hopefully, and get some of those vehicles trialled on our fleet. There will be a problem. You can't tow with those vehicles, probably. I mean, I should imagine you're going to really drain the battery quite quickly if you've got an MPV on the back of the the operational vehicle. But, yeah, we're really thinking outside the box as best we can at the AA. But we know, you know, you've got the technological sort of side of this, you've got the manufacturer side of this, you've got the consumer side of this, and we're trying to fit all those different areas at the moment. So, yeah, very exciting. The biggest problem for EVs for most people is probably going to be battery charge that they haven't reached their destination because they haven't managed their expectations of what their vehicle is available of you know that learning process that we're all going to go through yes 
in the future, is it realistic that an AA van will turn up with some kind of super generator in the back or some super capacitor and zap power into you to get you home, or is that just <laughs> Star Trek technology? We have been talking about it. I think at the moment we want to work with the manufacturers. Manufacturers, you know, for obvious reasons, they've had massive investments in the technology, and what we want to make sure is that if something goes wrong with one of the vehicles, get it back into the manufacturer. Let the experts take a look at it to begin with. As time goes on, and I'm sure you know better than I do, technology is going to gain pace at a massive rate, and there will be mobile charging units. And utopia for us is being able to get out to somebody, 20 minutes, get a quick charge, 80% of the battery life back in. I mean, that would be fantastic. So, yeah, that's my fingers crossed. But for the moment, we want to make sure we work alongside the manufacturers. Barry, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating to talk to you. It was a great debate, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. It's great having so many different sort of sides as well there. It was really good. Yeah, you worried me though when you came with your headphones on. I thought, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were right to be worried. This is Gareth Jones on Speed. We worry people. Phil Blythe from Newcastle University spoke at the debate today about a project that he's been involved in in the northeast. There are a number of electric vehicles that you're running and you're monitoring very, very closely. What are you looking for? We're trying to understand how to make electric vehicles relevant for drivers of the future, you know, worth buying. What are the issues that people will have with electric vehicles? So we've got black boxes in these vehicles. We're taking data from the engine, from the management system. We're measuring the current drain and the regeneration of current into the battery when vehicles break and we're recording the locations of the vehicles so we're tracking them with GPS and really trying to understand how people drive these things how people will use them in their everyday life how they will begin to trust the technology trust the information they have on state of charge of the vehicle and range available of the vehicle and actually just take them as part of their family life so we're recording how they're driving how they're recharging how over time as they trust the technology they drive the vehicles further they trust the range that they will have with the vehicle further. They so when people get electric cars initially, they think, well, I better recharge it well, tonight. yeah, it's a bit like when you get your mobile phone and you're not quite sure how efficient the battery is, you plug it in every possible opportunity. Mm. But once you trust the technology, trust what you're being told, you may only plug it in once every three days if you know what your journey is going to be like. But by looking at how the vehicle battery regenerates and actually uses power over different traffic conditions, over the temperature of the air, because batteries are very sensitive to temperature, over topology, you know, as we drive up and down hills. How does that discharge the battery? How does that regenerate the battery when it's going downhill? So you can have much more accurate predictions of the performance of the vehicle. So you can plan your route with a better degree of accuracy than just drawing a sort of 10-mile circle around the vehicle and saying, that's the range you've got now, matey. So this is the future for people who use EVs. You have to plan and effectively book your journey. You know, you, you need to consider whether the vehicle you've got will do the journey at the time you want it to because yeah. you need recharge time. I, I think a lot right? of it will be intuitive. You know how far you can get, but if you're recharging the, the vehicle and you say, well, I need to get to here, you can maybe pull the vehicle with your mobile phone and see, well, how much charge do I have? And based on the time of day, the level of congestion, the roads I'm going to use, in reality, how far can I get? And really have much smarter information about the vehicle. And yeah, I was in Japan last week in Yokohama at the Japanese Automobile Conference and they really want to put technology into these electric vehicles, make them smarter, make that as a unique selling point as well as obviously being electric, and deliver this sort of information. Japan is a very good policy in terms of technology taker. Yeah. You know, Japan yeah. likes to be at the forefront of technology. In Britain, 
we're a little more conservative. Will that work against us, do you think, in terms of achieving the CO2 goals that we have to by 2020? I think we are a bit more conservative, and, uh, and certainly in terms of our own industry commercialising products, we're much more conservative. But my view is that there is a real enthusiasm for electric vehicles and low-carbon vehicles. We know what the issues are in terms of energy availability in the future with oil, the whole issue of CO2 for greenhouse gas emissions, and we have to make a difference. We're seeing a real interest in what can we do that's different. And there are a lot of people, not just the early technology um, adopters, adopters and not just the green eco-warriors, but the general public thinking, yeah, are these vehicles relevant to us? So that's the important thing about the trials. We're looking at not just the technical data about how they perform and how we can provide better information to drivers about you know, how can you improve your performance by driving in a particular way, choosing particular roads, maybe avoiding congested times of day or avoiding certain routes with lots of traffic lights or lots of hills, for example. But also looking at the attitudes that people have towards concern about range anxiety, about trading off the cost, because an average five-seater family vehicle is going to be about five or six thousand pounds more than the petrol equivalent. But governments looking at offsetting that by five thousand pound sort of um, incentive, and people have to trade off whether that's the thing for them. Obviously, the issue with pure electric is the range is not as good as a petrol vehicle at the moment. But a lot of people using it will be maybe commuting, maybe doing the school run and stuff like that. And a hundred miles will give them two or three days usage. So as someone who is perhaps right at the spearhead, you're measuring how electric vehicles are used and how they will be used in future. There are so many shortcomings compared to what we're used to with the freedom of just getting in your car and driving as far as you want. Will electric vehicles take over? Can they realistically do it? Or does it require a sea change in terms of attitude to make that happen? I think a sea change in attitude is important in the long term. But we're seeing now, as petrol prices increase, that on motorways where you monitor flows, on some of the motorways, there's 50% reduction in number of vehicles on the road at the moment because people are cutting down because of the credit crunch, because of the price of oil. And those that are driving, the average speed is actually reducing to below 70 for the first time ever and that shows that people are being more eco-friendly more aware of the petrol they're using now translating that into electric vehicles yes they are not relevant for everybody but over time i think the range will extend i'm a great believer that if there is a market push for a technology like mobile phone batteries 15 years ago they lasted no time at all they were the size of a house brick over time they've gone to a very small battery with massive amounts of performance and the same thing will happen with electric vehicles i'm convinced of that Professor Phil Blythe, Newcastle University, thank you for your presentation. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. My pleasure. Gareth Jones on As is often the case, Zog and I are the last people left at a party. Um, Now that the debating is over and people are enjoying a glass of wine, I think. We're going to be here till midnight, aren't we? Uh, you never know. Uh, we're not driving anywhere after this age. <laughs> we are not drinking and driving in any way or form. It's been great to have a chance to talk to some of the people here from the AA and manufacturers and the like. Would you say that the tone of this debate, this analysis of the electric car, was positive, or is it peppered with pitfalls? Overall positive, but people are looking at all kinds of things that are problems in increasing the use of electric cars. 
is it something that would sway you? Would you buy an electric car tomorrow, 10 years, 5 years? Depends how much money I had to spend, depends on what my needs were. Uh, to answer the question directly, I am not about to go out and buy an electric car because uh, at the moment I have a petrol engine car that fits my needs and, more to the point, my desires quite well. To be honest, being a Londoner and somebody that doesn't have a regular need to do a lot of trips out of town, I could get by perfectly happily on public transport. I choose to have a car because I want one. I'm not about to give that up for an electric car. I think what you've identified there is a fairly typical attitude of anyone who likes to drive a car, needs to drive a car, needs to use a car at the moment, that the technology and the infrastructure is not quite yet in place to make it a direct replacement for what we're used to. And so we're waiting for either the technology to catch up with our needs or a massive change in culture which prohibits us from doing what we want to do. That answer that you give now, I mean, that's a much bigger answer than I was really implying by what I was saying with what I've got. I'm sticking with what I've got because I really like that 24-year-old Porsche and, uh, you know... <laughs> hey, and it's, it's eco-friendly because it's, it's 24 years old. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's been very interesting hearing and being involved in a discussion about so many questions of infrastructure, of consumer acceptance. My view is I wouldn't have any problem at all driving the right electric car tomorrow. I know that I would be able to charge it up cheaply. In doing that, if I was concerned about my carbon footprint, I'd know that a journey that I would make on that car filling up with regular London electricity with the regular UK electric mix, that will still be a lower carbon journey than the the petrol equivalent, if you like. I also know that if everybody in the same couple of blocks around me gets an electric car and tries to charge it up at the same time, there's going to be a problem because the substation probably can't cope. But that's an infrastructure problem which is going to get sorted out at some point. One thing that we've touched on in a couple of discussions is the fact that it's interesting in a sense how simple a lot of electric car technology is. You know, this stuff isn't easy. You could take people that were in this room half an hour ago, ask them to go out and build an electric car, and I don't know, I I don't know how many of them will be able to make an electric car from scratch, but I'm absolutely sure that it will be a lot more people than would be able to make a petrol engine car from scratch. The technology is inherently much simpler, and I think that the general public's attitude is a lot more informed, a lot more open to electric cars than it was a couple of years ago. The problems aren't that people aren't ready for electric cars, or that there isn't a demand for it. The problem is really much much more that there aren't the vehicles available to buy cheaply enough and people aren't sufficiently familiar with how you charge, refill them and the infrastructure isn't quite there to support that mass use of electric vehicles. In other words, and I hope this isn't too bad a pun, electric cars have potential, but they're not quite there yet. I think. So, thanks very much, man. Nice hey, to talk to you. Pleasure. And if you want to read the report that the Royal Academy of Engineering have published on the future of the electric car, go to their website, which is R A E N G, Royal Academy of Engineering.org.uk, and tell them Gareth Jones on Speed sent you. See ya. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site or follow us on Twitter, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!